have as your like main home campus, and you haven't been to, to the Devereux Street campus, you know, this is a great opportunity. There are only really four times a year where we get the two campuses together, and Christmas Eve is one of them. Last year it was pretty full on Christmas Eve. We are providing childcare. Uh, we have apparently three people that just are willing to ruin their Christmas Eves with your kids. So, uh, but that's uh, the 24th at 7 p.m. Please come on by to that. Yeah, it's over at the other campus. Uh, I do have something I want to distribute. We have these invitations that Rachel Yee, our excellent administrative assistant, made. And I want to give three to each one of you and just recommend that you hand these out, invite somebody to the Christmas Eve service. It's just a, that's like one time a year where people are looking to go to a church. And our Christmas Eve service is, I really like it. There's candles. We give candles to children, so it's really exciting. Um, you're really on your toes the whole time. Uh, so, uh, Shay, would you mind, and Jerabel, actually, you know what, Shay, have a seat. You're an elder. Jerabel and Maribel, can I put you both to work? Well, he's wearing sweats, so I know he's trying to relax. Whereas you two at least came dressed appropriately. Uh, if you can give three, three per person, I would appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to get started. I had a good time over at Wissanoming this morning. Um, man, I have to say, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I hope you guys can handle it. All right. Each campus has its own strengths. You know where I'm going with this? All right. Here, here are uh, the strengths at Tyson Ave. Um, you guys are generous givers. You work hard. You volunteer a lot. Uh, I have, I mean, there's nothing I could say or complain when it comes to that. But man, Wissanoming, there it's like a, a bunch of like loud cats the whole time. I mean, they talk back. I, it's it's more like a question and answer period than a sermon over there. So that does distract me a little bit, but I know that they're engaged. Like I know they're paying attention because they're popping up, asking questions, writing notes. Um, you know, talking back to me. Um, sometimes over here, it's like an episode of The Walking Dead. Brains. I've never seen The Walking Dead because I just basically watch um, Bible DVDs. But, <laughs> and listen to four hymn albums. So, but I, can I just try, pretend you're alive today. All right, let's do that. I had a good time with this sermon over there this morning. I don't know why. All right. Today we're finishing this, we're finishing the series on the um, values of our church. And uh, Nate, could you put that slide? It's the next slide up on the screen. These are our church's five values. Now, uh, these values make us distinct from the church down the street or even the church that we meet in. Now, we're not the only church, I'm not, I would never say that we're the only church that values these five things. There's plenty of other churches worldwide that values these five, value these five things. There are other churches, but they have their value statement, we have our value statement. This is not a matter of whose is better or whose is worse, but this is just us, okay? This just makes us us. I don't know anywhere else that has this combination or this wording. This was not stolen from anywhere or borrowed from a book. This was something that I felt like is unique to us, unique to Truvine. Well, it is unique to Truvine. Um, and so these are the, the values that we have. Now, 
Uh, we also have a vision statement, which I have not preached through recently. Our vision statement is right uh, over there behind you next to Anna. We believe that God's vision for us is to be a missional, prophetic, diverse, and multiplying congregation. Now, let me explain how our values and our vision relate. Our vision is where we're going. Okay, so if you thought of this as like a road trip, the vision is the destination. The values are the directions. So how do we get where we're going? By doing these five things or by valuing these five things. And I don't want you to look at these just as a list of values. I want you to look at these as actions or behaviors that we want to incorporate into our lives. First, on a weekly basis. So the living and active word of God or the Bible Spirit-led prayer, anointed worship, authentic relationships, and kingdom growth. These are things that I'm going to ask you to not just say, I think these are important, but to work them into your life on a weekly basis. And then once they're part of your life on a weekly basis, begin to work them into your life on a daily basis. So, you know, if you need to start with, you know, I'm going to read, I'm going to read the Bible once a week. I'm going to pray once a week. I'm going to worship once a week. Okay, you can probably get almost all of that in a church service for the most part. But once you've established that, I would then move to every day. This is part of my life every day, which means you're going to have to do it at home. You're going to have to take this stuff home. And once you've gotten some traction there, and you don't have to be perfect, once you've gotten some traction and established this as part of your daily life, then help other people incorporate it into their lives. And you will never run out of, of opportunities to do that. So once you've established these as values in your life, you know, teach another person how to read the Bible well. Teach another person how to pray. Teach another person how to worship. Does that make sense? So first we want to get these into our lives on a weekly basis, then a daily basis, then we are teaching others or leading others to value these five things. You got that? Great. Well, you've been hearing it for five weeks, so hopefully you've got most of it by now. So the, today we're finishing a little bit out of order we're finishing with, whoops, we're finishing with authentic relationships. Uh, we did this a little bit out of order. We did kingdom growth last week, so we're going to wrap up with authentic relationships. Now, let me tell you why authentic relationships is on our list of values. Um, if we were a bigger, cooler, richer, older church, we might have essentially a menu of programs that we could offer to any visitor that came in off the street. If, if someone came in and they were a single mom with a couple kids, we, many churches can say, oh, well, Tuesday morning is our single moms group. Why don't you go to that? Or if you had been through a divorce or you're going through a divorce, you might be able to walk in and they say, we have a divorce support group on Thursday nights. Why don't you go to that? Or if you're 60 and above, they might say, well, here's our prime timers ministry for people that are 60 and above. Or if you're 40 and below, they might say, here's your young adults. Here's our young adults ministry. It probably meets at some ungodly hour, like 10 p.m. on Mondays or something like that. Why don't you go to that and you can talk about who has the coolest phone? Uh, and you would have a ministry for every little demographic, right? I mean, and, and what you could do is pick ministries that fit you. You could say, well, I'm a single mom going through divorce, and I'm 35, so here's three groups that fit me. 
and I'll go to these programs and I'll go to these meetings and after such and such a time, I'll be more like Jesus. Now, it, you know, it's not really my responsibility to critique approaches, but I'll just say this, we can't do that. We're not big enough, rich enough, cool enough, trendy enough to be able to pull that off. So when a visitor walks in, our program for them is you. <sighs> I shudder at the thought of it. If a single mom walks in to our church and tells me her story, I don't have a single mom's group to point her to. I just have single moms to point her to. You understand the difference? If someone walks in here and says, I'm a left-handed introvert that likes to sit in the dark, <laughs> I say, I know someone like that. We don't have a program for people like that. I probably maybe need to. But, you know, so if, if it's a young mom or a, or a senior or a young adult or a person that likes sports, you know, we don't have a program for everybody, but what I can do is connect you to someone else who has a similar story. Does that make sense? So that's why when we say we value authentic relationships, that's a main reason why. So, Nate, if you can go to the next slide for me. This is the description from our website of authentic relationships. Relationships, not programs or entertainment, will be how we impact people. Through committed friendships, mentoring, service, and other kinds of relationships, we will not only be able to minister to our community, but we will be able to learn about our community from those that we are in relationship with. So the reason, the primary reason we value authentic relationships is because that's actually where discipleship takes place. You can sit through a program or a class or a meeting and not really be changed. But I know that all of you have experienced at some point in your life, it's, it's the relationships that you're in that really shape you, for the good or for the bad. It's the relationships, the people that are in your life that really shape you. So one of my dreams, and I don't do this perfectly, I, I would hesitate to even say I do it very well, is to be able to connect people in our church with other people who have similar stories so that they can encourage one another, support one another, learn from one another, and be in relationship with one another. I would love someday, we're not really there yet, but I would love someday to be able to connect every young lady with a lady who's... A, a generation or half a generation older than her for mentoring. You know, I, every young lady has a mentor who's about their mom's age or maybe a little younger, but at least, at least 10 years ahead in life, you know. And every young man to have a man who's just a 10 years or a generation ahead of them to mentor them rather than say, well, let's all read this book and take this class and when you're done, you'll be like Jesus. I would rather plug people into relationships that can, that can last you know, forever, that will lead to discipleship. Now, we're not quite there yet. We have had some of that. We've had a smattering of it. Some of it takes place organically without me putting it together. But man, I would love that. I would love, you know, everybody over 30 to be mentoring somebody under 30. And everybody under 30 to be being mentored by someone that's over 30 and then mentoring maybe like a teenager or a kid. You, should, you know, it would be awesome if each one of us had in our life someone who's ahead of us that can mentor us and someone who's behind us that we can pour that stuff into. That's, I think, how the church is supposed to work. But we're, we're working on that. We're getting there. All right. So 
Now, this authentic relationships value, I really like it. It's challenging. It's very, very messy. Um, because relationships require you to be real and raw. I found out at Wissanoming that the phrase keep it a bean is not an actual phrase people use. Is it? Okay, keep it a bean or keep it 100. Okay, people have heard that. Apparently no one's heard keep it a bean. I got a lot of dirty looks at Wissanoming about that. Well, I've heard it, but I apparently I heard it from a person who's not a trendsetter. So being honest, being real, being authentic, being genuine. I, I will say this. The, the, probably the primary reason that our church can maintain any level of diversity is because every culture values authenticity. I don't care where you came from, where you were raised, how you were raised. Every culture values people who are real. And that probably above and beyond anything else is what will hold us together as a otherwise diverse group of people just being real with one another. Is that, you got that? So this authentic relationships, I mean, there's a couple different angles that I could take with this today, but I felt pretty strongly the last two weeks that there is one particular aspect of authentic relationships that, that the Lord wanted to highlight this week, and it is in the area of trust. It is how we can trust one another, how we restore our ability to trust one another, how we become trustworthy. You've probably heard the saying, I've heard it many times, that trust is lost in buckets and gained in drops. Have you ever heard that? Well, even if you haven't, it's true. I mean, it is. You know, like one stupid decision, one time that you betray someone, and everything you've built up for the last 10 years just kind of gets dumped. And then you just got to start all over, one drop at a time, building that trust back up. I don't know why it has to be that way, but to be honest, I can't be mad at people because that's how I would see it too. I mean, that's, you know, like, it would take a thousand kisses to be made up for being stabbed in the back once. That was a metaphor, by the way. Don't kiss me. Or stab me in the back. In fact, I would maybe prefer stabbing than kissing from some of you. Set <laughs> baby face up here in the front row here with the smooth, beardless face. Um, uh, but this idea of trust, I think it's key, especially if we're going to walk in authentic relationships with one another. And just to be perfectly clear, I'm talking about in the church, the 30 or 35 or so, however many might be less even, of us that are in this room right now, you know, the 175 or so people that comprise True Vine, being in relationship with one another. And, and how do we do that? Now, I want to um, show you this passage from Proverbs 20. If you can go to the next slide for me, Nate. It's a very simple passage. You really don't have to think through this very, very hard. It's pretty easy. Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? A righteous man who walks in his integrity. How blessed are his sons after him. And Nate, if you can go to the next slide, that was from the New American Standard Version. This is from the Passion, paraphrase. 
Many will tell you that they're loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly trustworthy? The lovers of God will walk in integrity, and their children are fortunate to have godly parents as an example as examples. If I was going to write my own paraphrase of this, it would say something like, everybody says how trustworthy they are, but almost no one is trustworthy. Have you experienced that? I've found that the more someone tells me how real they are, the less real they actually are. It's like they have to say it because they're making up for a deficit in their integrity. Oh, I'm real. You can trust me. I'm going to keep it a bean. Nope, just kidding, no one's ever said that. I want to be honest, I'm going to say what I think, and I've just found, I don't know why it is, but folks that, that harp on that generally aren't real. One of the most painful experiences I ever had in my life was with someone who constantly told me how real they were. It was right after Kenner and I had moved to Philadelphia, we were here by ourselves, it was just the two of us. No one else had moved. We, hadn't, we were just fresh into the city. We ate Chinese food every night because we didn't know where else to eat. Thankfully, Jesus sent two Chick-fil-A's into our region. Uh, but there was a man who lived close to us who I met just uh, kind of out on the street. He was one of the first people I met since moving to Philadelphia, and he was pro- probably my first friend that I made after moving here, and he had somehow found out that we were planting a church, and so he got involved in the early stages, and I had high hopes for this guy. I was so excited. He was a native Philadelphian. He was, he was older than me, and he knew people in the neighborhood, and I was like, yes, this is going to be great. And for a year, we got to know one another, and he had my family over to his house for dinner, and we would have he and his family over for dinner, and he gave me a key to his house that I still have to this day in case something should happen and someone needed to get into his house. And we spent holidays together that first year. And we just, I even actually took him to an elder training event so he could be trained down the road someday to be an elder of Truvine. And uh, that was in the first year, year and a half of living in Philadelphia. And then the day came where we were going to launch Truvine, we we're going to have our first Sunday morning service. And uh, it got, you know, we start at 10.30 and it got to be 10 o'clock and he, you know, big day, right? This is a big day. It got to be 10 o'clock and I, he was nowhere to be found. It was October 4th, 2009. I could nowhere to be found. And then his wife, for lack of a better term, called me and she said, hey, have you seen him? I said, well, I I was going to ask you the same thing. I thought he should be here by now, and he wasn't at 10.30. She started crying on the phone, and she told me the story. You know, he had had a past. He had been locked up a few times, and my understanding was he was past all that, which is, you know, why I took him to an elder training event. So this was Sunday morning. On Friday night, he and his, again, wife, for lack of a better term, went to an ATM to get some money out. They had what I call a good problem. The ATM just kept spitting out money. Now, those of you that have ever struggled with addiction know that one of the things that maybe got you out of addiction was you just couldn't afford it anymore. Sometimes being broke is the best sobriety plan you can have. 
Well, that was kind of helping him. So when he wasn't broke anymore, and he went back to that ATM repeatedly that Friday night, getting money that wasn't his, until he had enough money to bankroll a 48-hour third... I think most everyone in this room can hear this. Might want to cover his ears. He's asleep, right? 48-hour heroin-fueled orgy with his wife and multiple prostitutes in a hotel. And uh, when she, his wife, kind of cleared her head, she went home. But here we were Sunday morning. They left their kids at home for two days. She came home and didn't know where he was, didn't even know what hotel they were at to start searching. So this is what I get 30 minutes before we launch the church. Not the best news. I get distracted like if someone says, you know, where are the bulletins? So when you say my husband might be dead, we had a 48-hour orgy, you know, that throws me off a little. So we do the service. I got to be honest, it robbed some of the joy out of what otherwise should have been a pretty fun day. As soon as the service was over, I had to pick her up and we drove from hotel to hotel to hotel to hotel looking for him. Wondering if we were going to run up on a hotel with an ambulance or a police car. We went to every hotel she could think of. We never found him. I took her home. When I took her home, thankfully, he had already gone home. So when she got home, he was there. Uh, She let me know that he was there. I honestly didn't want to see him. So I said, well, you know what? Tell him I love him. And he'll hear from me in a few days. And that was the beginning of the unraveling of that friendship. Because that right there was a giant blow to my ability to trust him. Understandably, right? And then what happened was another little blow and another little blow and another little blow to the point now where I wave if I see him, he waves if he sees me, we can say hello and have a short little conversation, but there's no real relationship there. This guy's not part of our church, so don't try to think about who it was. All right, He's never been back. Um, that would be a hard thing to come back from, to be honest. So that was probably when it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm not in Kansas anymore. That there is going to be There are going to be challenging experiences that are going to challenge my trust. Because I came to Philadelphia as probably a borderline naive, easily trusting person. I trusted everybody. Uh, Oh, you need a dollar? Well, certainly it's for medicine or food, so here you go. You need to to borrow $100? Sure, you're good for it. You want to borrow my car? No problem. I just assumed that when someone said something, they meant it. I'll be there tonight at such and such a time. Never show up. And something started to happen in me because I experienced the truth of verse 6. Many will tell you that they're your loyal friends, but who can find one that is truly trustworthy? 
And I kept, I saw this essentially train or pattern in my life of people who would say, you can trust me, you can trust me, you can trust me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real, I'm going to be honest. But rarely were they. I mean, there were times where it felt like nine out of ten people were just trying to manipulate and use me. It probably was never actually that bad, but it sure felt like it. And so I began to go through this process in my heart that some of you probably can relate to of becoming jaded. I began to harden my heart, and I put up walls, right? I put up walls so that people couldn't hurt me and disappoint me anymore because uh, no one likes to be disappointed. So we protect ourselves from disappointment by putting up walls, right? Now, here's the thing. Many will tell you they're your loyal friends, but who can find one who is truly trustworthy? When I read that, I think of people that stab you in the back, right? Any of you ever been, like, stabbed in the back? Not physically. Like, you've had people betray you, right? Man, that's a, that's a hard, that is a hard thing to deal with. A large number of us have been stabbed in the back, and I bet we could probably tell stories all day long of times we are betrayed or taken advantage of. The flip side of that is if we are all getting stabbed in the back, someone's got to be running around with a knife, right? And are there any stories that could be told about us where we're that person? Because it's not one, it's not like, you know, the Noid from the Domino's commercials in the 90s running around stabbing everyone in the back. We usually stab each other in the back, right? So, you know, I have a ton of stories I could tell where I've been betrayed. I probably have been told stories about. So this passage is not just so that you can play the victim card, but each one of us needs to take responsibility for at times being the perpetrator, where we've been the one who has betrayed and dishonored and stabbed the other person in the back. So I want to talk a little bit about how we can restore our trust, because I don't think God wants to leave you in a place with a jaded heart. I think he wants to soften that back up so that you can trust well. But I also want to talk about how we can become people who are trustworthy. All right. So first, how do we restore our trust in others? I think willingness to forgive. And if you sense that your heart is jaded, you need to understand that that is a signal from God that you have forgiveness that you need to extend. That you have bitterness and anger that you need to process. God does not want you to be jaded because that will spill out in everything. You will become cynical. You will find the cloud in every silver lining. You know, every, everything that happens that could be good, you'll be like, yeah, we'll see if that works out. And believe me, no one, that is the voice of Jim Rudd above all other people. Yeah, we'll see about that. I'm about the most cynical person that you can meet. I'm confessing that, and it's because I've been jaded. And right now, God is doing stuff in me to soften me back up and get the walls back down and teach me how to trust again. But if, you're, if you find that that's you, you're also going to need to grieve losses. There's going to be stuff that you thought you would have that you didn't get. Stuff that didn't work out. I mean, and those are, anytime you feel grief, it's because you've lost something. It might be an actual, tangible thing that you've lost. It might be a dream that you've lost, but you're, you're going to have to grieve those losses, especially as they relate to your relationships with other people. I mean, that's a big topic, but 
Especially as you feel like people have, people have stolen parts of your relationships away. People have lied to you. People have betrayed you. Those are the areas where you're going to have to process and grieve those losses and let the Lord bring healing. Now, okay. If you've been stabbed in the back, it is not your fault that you were stabbed in the back, but it is your fault if you leave the knife there. If, I, if you were ever actually literally stabbed in the back, your number one priority would be what? Get the knife out of my back. But when you've been stabbed in the back, this is what happens with people when they get stabbed in the back emotionally. They leave the knife there so they can show it to people. Oh, this person, they stabbed me in the back. It hurts so bad. Oh, you want me to get that out? No, 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 no. no. Because then I couldn't tell people about it. Oh, it hurts so bad. Oh, someone get this knife out, but not really. Because it gives me a lot of attention if I can talk about it. And uh, so if you've been stabbed in the back, that is not your fault. Leaving the knife there for 10 years is your fault. There comes a point where it's now your responsibility to move on. Right? And, you know... You know, I don't expect a person, if they've been physically stabbed in the back, to just hop up and be like, you, well, I'm good. I don't expect that, and I wouldn't expect it if it happened to you in your heart, you know, if it happened to you emotionally. But after a while, a betrayal that, that is not forgiven becomes an entitlement, and it sours all the other relationships that you have. And so leaving that knife there for an extended period of time, that is your fault, and that is your responsibility. And ironically, the only way to get a knife out of your back is to let someone else go back to the same place you got stabbed. Right? I mean, like, if I got stabbed in the back, the first thing I would think of, I'm never letting anyone back there again. But if someone's going to pull the knife out, you have to trust. Like, the first thing you have to do after being wounded is trust someone else to get that knife out. Right? And that, you know, it's often the inability to trust that prevents us from allowing the knife to be removed. And in most cases, we can't get it out. We need some help. You following the metaphor here? I hope I haven't lost you on the metaphor here. So, being stabbed in the back is not your fault. Leaving the knife there is, though. And the remedy to that is actually trusting someone else to go right back to where the wound happened and remove it. Now, it will take time for the wound to heal, no doubt about it. It's going to take time for you to process the pain. It's going to take time for you to process the betrayal. It's going to take time for you to be ready to trust again. But until you get that offense out, no healing is going to begin. You know, I've, this happened, I, I mean, you, you guys have Facebook, right? Some of you, most of you. Oh my gosh, Facebook is a treasure trove of emotionally unhealthy advice. Oh my goodness. If you just followed all the advice you saw on Facebook, you would be so f screwed up. Oh, I can't believe it. Oh, sorry, I, can, oh, I need to calm down. Two, three, four. Okay, I'm better now. People on Facebook, you know, I forgive, but I don't forget. All right, so you're not like Jesus then. Ezekiel, is it Ezekiel? Uh, Isaiah 43, 25, God says that he forgives our sins and he forgets our iniquities. 
So God forgives and forgets. Now, what does it mean to forgive and forget? Now, you know, you all have brains, and um, I'm just going to leave it. You all have brains. When someone hurts you, forgetting forgetting about it does not necessarily mean you're going to wipe your wipe your mind clean and never remember it. That's that's not what we're talking about. You, you know, if someone hurts you, yeah, it's probably going to be in your memory forever. I think what the Bible talks about when it's talking about forgetting, at least us forgetting, is we're taking it from the forefront of our mind, consuming all of our thoughts every day, and moving it to the back of our mind. Where Yes, I remember it, but it doesn't drive my day. Do you understand the difference there? So forgiving and forgetting for us means we're forgiving, and then we're saying, you know what? This thing that happened is not part of my daily thought process anymore. I file it back as a life experience. I learn from it, but it doesn't drive my thoughts on a daily basis anymore. That's what forgetting means for you and I. It doesn't mean you're going to get a lobe of your brain cut off where your memories are. You're you're not going to do the uh, men in black little flashlight that fries your memory. Man, that would be awesome if that existed, by the way. But you know, that if that existed, you could probably relieve a lot of pain, but you would also remove a lot of wisdom. Right? All right. So, uh, forgiving and forgetting and moving on uh, means, I think, just you have to let it process to the back of your mind. So, it's, it's, it remains as a source of wisdom, but not as a source of pain. Which then leads me to this... Uh, the wisdom part, because this question came up at Wissanomi in the middle, in the middle of the sermon. So, what do I do when people seem to take advantage of me? I mean, do I just like let people run all over me? Well, no, you don't do that. Uh, it says in Proverbs, it uses the word for that. The word for that is naive, and it says in Proverbs multiple times that you're not to be naive. Uh, So the way you solve naivete is through wisdom. You solve it through discernment. The Bible makes it very clear what a fool is and what a wise person is like. And through through study of the Bible and life experience, you're going to need to have a pretty good understanding of who's a fool and who's wise. And then you use that to discern yourself. So, uh, you know, I don't loan fools money, I give them gifts. Do you understand the difference? You don't expect the gift back. And you only give what you can afford to never get back. (laughs) So if they ask for a $100 loan, I'm like, yeah, this ain't going to be a loan. And I can't afford to give up 100 so I can afford to give up 20 Do you understand the difference there? Or you just determine... You know what, however you use this is how you use it, but I'm not going to hold you accountable for it. I think uh, this is often how we're manipulated. I guess I'm only saying this because it came up so strongly in the first service. When someone asks us to help or do something with them or for them or whatever, um, you have to be careful that you're not being manipulated. If you're a people pleaser, you are like prime candidate to be manipulated. Let me say that again. If you are a people pleaser, you're a prime candidate for manipulation. Because people will string you along, and at the very first sense of you not pleasing them, they can 
turn you to do whatever it is that they want you to do. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. So how do we restore our trust in others, grieving losses and betrayals, releasing jadedness? How do I become trustworthy? You need to know your limits and honor your word. So if you're going to, if you're going to not be verse 6, but instead be verse 7, the lovers of God will walk in, te- in integrity. How do you walk in integrity? Know your limits and honor your word. Know your limits just means, you know, if you made plans with eight people on Saturday, don't make plans with the ninth. You know, if, if you agreed to help with this or do that or say this or provide that, you eventually are going to have to say, you know, I, I'm doing all I can do and there comes a limit where I can't do more. Otherwise, you are setting people up for disappointment. Uh, I like to say, under promise, over deliver. I mean, I do that all the time. Uh, if I think that I can provide 10 of something, I'll say, yeah, I can probably give you seven. And then if I can only give them seven, then I've kept my word. If I can give them 10, well, then they're pleasantly surprised. And the flip side of that is over-promise, under-deliver. If you can give someone 10 of something, but you really think they would love to hear you say 15, and you say 15, but you only provide 10, you're setting them up for disappointment. So you have to know your limits. You know, you have 168 hours in a week. You have X amount of money in your bank account. You have X amount of energy, X amount of opportunities. You just have to know that and not spread yourself too thin. Secondly, you need to honor your word. If you don't honor your word, no one else will honor your word. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That is not hard to understand. Don't, don't like try to twist that. If you say yes, mean yes. And follow through with it even if it costs you inconvenience. If you say no, mean no and follow through with it even if it costs you inconvenience. It does take time, but eventually people will know that your word means something. But if you don't honor your word, other people aren't obligated to honor your word. Does that make sense? You follow that? Now, um, both, of these, both of these issues of trust, both trusting others and becoming trustworthy, they start and end with the concept of trusting God. You know, that's the beginning and the end of the, of the, the concept of trust in Scripture is our ability to trust God. If you can't trust God, you will certainly not trust other people. Because ultimately it comes down to, is God going to protect you or expose you? I remember I was preaching at a church one time, and we were about to get started, and the guy that was running the service was unprepared, it was chaotic, it was just super disorganized. And he came up to me right like two minutes before I was supposed to preach, and it's kind of like, belching all this stuff on me and I was just overwhelmed and it was clear that we weren't ready and uh, the Lord really clear it was like one of the clearest things I've ever heard from the Lord he just said don't worry about trusting him trust me and that put me at ease because I did not trust that guy uh, at all but I trusted the Lord that he would take care of things and that even though it felt chaotic in the moment that he would take care of the moment, the situation. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5 
says, and I don't know why, have you ever seen those little cards that have your name on it and then like a random Bible verse? I don't know how they pick the verses, but for my name, for James, it's always Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I don't know why that's the James verse when I have a whole book named after me. Or I was, I don't know. One of us came first. I don't know why Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You know what that says, basically? Trust God more than you trust yourself. Man, that's hard. Because Kendra, Kendra hates this about me. I implicitly trust my own judgment. <laughs> I never second-guess myself to a fault. I pretty much think I'm right 100% of the time. Uh, and I found, statistically, that about 20% of the time I am right. So, 20%. That was a joke, guys. Well, that was a funny joke, and I know it, no matter how you feel about it. So, that is a hilarious joke, and I'm confident of it. But that verse means trust God more than you even trust yourself. That's a hard one for me, because I really trust myself. Um, but God has never let me down, and I, I hate to admit it, but I've let myself down a couple times, more than a couple Lean, uh, trust with the Lord, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You have to trust the Lord. He's, he's ultimately the one that takes the knife out of your back and you're going to tr- need to trust him to get back there. This is kind of what I want to wrap up with. Uh, Kevin, would you mind coming up and playing for us for a moment? I kind of want to do something that's a little, a little old school and a little traditional. I would like to wrap up with an altar call. I don't know what the altar situation is up here, but I'm just we'll just make this front section the altar. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of do some one-on-one FaceTime with God. And here are the two invitations I'm giving you. If your ability to trust, like your trust reflex has been damaged, I want to ask you to come up and ask the Lord to begin healing that. I want, I want you to picture it as like one of your senses. Like if your ability to smell has been damaged and that can be restored, your ability to trust can be damaged. It's like a reflex. That can be damaged. And I, if you are in that boat, I want to ask you to come up and ask the Lord to begin healing that. You might have to very specifically pray through some forgiveness for people that have hurt you, stabbed you in the back, betrayed you. The other invitation I want to give is if you want to be a person who is trustworthy and you know that that's an area where you're going to need some divine intervention. Essentially, you're asking the Lord, Lord, make me reliable. Make me trustworthy. Help me to make sure my yes is yes and my no is no. Cultivate faithfulness in my heart. If that's you, I want to ask you to come up. And the reason we're doing this is because we need to establish this stuff in our in the culture of our church. If we're really going to say we value authentic relationships, we need to establish this in the culture of our church. So I'm going to have just, Kevin's going to play for a little bit. I'm not really going to guide this very much. I want to provide a couple moments for you to come up. You can come up at any point and just do some one-on-one time with God. And then after a few minutes, I'm going to lead us in one more thing. So come up if you're ready. 
And uh, I'll just dedicate this whole front section here. something called streak smarts. You guys know what I'm referring to? Streak smarts. Um, essentially is just a, a way to protect myself. Uh, probably most of you grew up with a form of street smarts to help you navigate your home. You wouldn't call it street smart. It's like how, to, how I had to survive in the Rudd household, 1981 to 1999, or some, you know, like Rudd smarts or whatever. It's like those behaviors that you learn to protect your soul. This is what I've learned about street smarts, though. Street smarts really only are helpful if you intend to stay on the streets. Do you really want to keep living like that? Streets, you know, one of the worst things we could have is a church that operates based on street principles. So, I want to propose something different. Instead of street smarts that we use to protect ourselves, get over on one another, survive, I want to introduce this principle of kingdom smarts. There's probably a better, cooler way to refer to it, but knowing how things function in the kingdom and have that be the way we run a church and are a church. Uh, I don't want to force Rudd smarts or the way I had to learn to function in my family of origin on a church. And I don't want you to have to force that on a church or on kids when there's a whole large and clear volume that tells us what the principles of the kingdom of God are like. And so, street smarts are good for the street. How many of you want to be on the street? Not me. So, these, these kingdom smarts, like understanding how to release for forgiveness and how to release bitterness and how to not be jaded and how to trust the Lord and how to trust our brothers and sisters in Christ, those are principles of the kingdom. So, I, just, I want to pray for us that the Lord would help us to exchange, whether it's the street smarts or your household smarts or whatever, I want to pray that the Lord would help us to exchange those for kingdom, like the kingdom principles there. So Lord, I just confess that uh, I have entrusted my soul to principles of protection into principles that would help me navigate manipulation and principles that would help me that would actually lead me to not trust other people and not trust you I have adopted those Lord but I repent of them and I know that that is not the way that we function in the kingdom so Lord I ask that you would help me 
just accept and receive the principles of the kingdom for how my emotions and my thoughts and my decisions are supposed to unfold. I want my emotions to be in line with the kingdom of God. I want my thoughts to be in alignment with the kingdom. I want my decisions and my decision-making process to align with the kingdom, Lord. So I pray, Jesus, in your name against street smarts, household smarts, rud smarts, whatever other smarts, and Lord, I pray for kingdom smarts. We would know how the kingdom works and that we would live in a way that reflects that, Jesus. I pray that.